Welcome to Present Value. Hi, everyone. Harrison Job here, co-founder of Present Value. We're excited to share our conversation between Professor Vishal Gar and senior producer James Feld. They cover a variety of topics centered around Vishal's research in operations management, including the ways firms can tackle challenges around product expiration, how inventory levels can predict a firm's financial performance, and why growing the number of retail stores isn't necessarily the optimal strategy that firms should pursue. Professor Gar is also the outgoing associate dean for MBA programs at Johnson. I had the privilege to work with him while I served as Johnson's student council co-chair in 2018, so I'm thrilled to now be sharing his academic interests and research to a wider audience on present value. It's a great conversation about operations management that you won't want to miss. And with that, here's our conversation with Vashal Gar and James Feld. I'm your host, James Feld, and today I'm excited to welcome Professor Vishal Gar to the studio. Vishal Gar is the Associate Dean for MBA Programs and the Emerson Professor of Manufacturing Management at the Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. Here at Johnson, Dean Gar teaches the popular MBA course Retail Operations, and his research focuses on operations management, supply chain management, and linking operations with a firm's financial performance. He has received numerous awards, including the Johnson Faculty Research Award, the Clifford H. Whitcomb Faculty Fellowship, and the Johnson Core Faculty Award from three graduating classes. He holds a Bachelor of Technology from the Indian Institute of Technology, an MBA from the Indian Institute of Management, and a Master's and PhD from the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania. Dean Gar, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, James. For our listeners, can you elaborate on what sparked your interest in operations management and specifically data's role within it? I've always been interested in looking at data collected by companies to improve decision-making. Companies these days collect a ton of data of different kinds, combining ideas from operations, marketing, finance, consumer behavior, etc. And it's really interesting to make decisions not just using mathematical models, but also bringing in the wisdom of the data and understanding what customers are actually telling them, how their business is actually running, and applying those mathematical models on actual data for the firm to decide how it is doing and how it can improve its performance. To me, the most fun aspect of doing research and teaching is to bring data to bear on problems. So for example, even when I start looking at a research problem or at a question for my teaching, I first try to use data to figure out what's going on related to that problem for actual companies and then use that data to build story. And that's how my research typically goes. At Johnson, you teach retail operations. Can you give an example of a firm that is using data in an innovative way to solve a problem? Absolutely. Retail is a really fun industry because retailers collect so much data of different kinds from their stores, from their operations, from customers. One can apply really nice models to that data to improve their decisions. One area, I think there are many, many areas where retailers are actually doing well with data. One such area would be in, I would say, assortment planning or merchandising decisions. In the past, retailers used to be able to observe sales two actual consumers in a store. Now, in addition to observing sales, they also observe 
browsing behavior of those customers online. Even before a customer buys something, you can see what the customer looked at in the store, online store. What the customer may have put in her shopping cart before making a purchase. So those data are really insightful. They give us understanding about how a customer makes decisions, and we can translate that understanding into business decisions that will be useful for subsequent consumers. Even in assortment planning in a brick-and-mortar store, you not only get to see what consumers are buying, but you also get to see what you stock in the store. Something may not be getting purchased because it is stocked out, or it may not be getting purchased because someone doesn't want it and it is in stock. So being able to differentiate between these things makes for really interesting problems that are impactful, that matter to companies, and that result in really interesting research for us in the academia. So I love working on these problems. I have worked on them for a long time, and I bring them to my PhD students, to fellow academics, and also to my students in the classroom. So the story begins with assortment planning, but one can actually apply data to lots of different things in retail. Right now, retailers are looking at location sensing technology or combining online browsing behavior and brick and mortar visits of their consumers. And these things are really ramping up the pace of innovation in brick and mortar retail, in online retail. It's fun to watch. It's fun to work on. Do you have an example of a retailer who's been successful at combining their customers' online browsing behavior with their brick and mortar store visits? Yes, I think one example that comes to mind for integrating online and brick and mortar data would be a retailer like Best Buy. For example, if you go to Best Buy store to buy a television set or maybe a keyboard for music, there are hundreds and thousands of different products available that you could choose from. And the store will have only a few items in stock. And online, they will have a lot more variety. So in making a purchase, you are interacting with the store and also interacting online. And the store is making really conscious decisions about what to stock in the store and what to stock online. So do you stock the most popular item in the store? Or do you stock one item of each kind in the store? What you do depends on how the customer is making a decision. Is the customer looking at the brand first in making a decision? Or is the customer looking at the technology or the size of the television set? So depending on the sequence in which the customer is making decisions, this is called a lexicographic search process. Then based on that, one would make different decisions. And companies like Best Buy are doing really interesting things in this domain. So that's just one example. I think there are many other examples. One really interesting example is Warby Parker, which integrates online retail with their brick-and-mortar stores. In their brick-and-mortar stores, one can go and try out different kinds of glasses, place an order, and the and you don't actually walk out of the store with a pair of glasses in your hands, but the product gets delivered to you later on. So this whole idea of integrating customer experiences between online and brick-and-mortar is really interesting, and lots of retailers like Best Buy, Warby Parker, Home Depot, etc. are experimenting with these ideas. You've also done research on product expiration dates and ways firms can mitigate issues around that. Can you elaborate more on that research? Yes, I can. Product expiration is a really interesting problem, and it's also an important problem. I started working on this problem about five years back, and at that time I did not know that 
one to two percent of packaged food products expire on the retail shelf. We got data from a large packaged foods manufacturer for all of their stores throughout the U.S. for a period of a year. And looking at that data, we discovered that to our surprise, products expire so regularly on the retail shelf. And this happens, so for example, if you take Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi or any other diet product, it's not that the product goes bad, but that it loses flavor. And so companies want to get rid of it on the shelf and replace it with a fresh product. Earlier, we used to think that expiration is a result of poor execution by companies. So the retailer maybe is not replenishing their shelves properly, or the manufacturer is not providing the product in time to the retailer. So our initial thought was that this is a problem of poor coordination or poor execution between manufacturers and retailers. But to our surprise, what we learned was that expiration is a problem of design of the supply chain and design of the product itself. So to take an example, many products that we buy in retail stores are sent to the retail store in case pack sizes of 6, 12, or 24. If the store is a high-volume store, the product would be a fast-moving product and the case will probably get sold in no time. But if the store carries a huge amount of variety and the product takes a long time to sell, or if it's a slow-moving item in that store, then it's quite possible that the store that receives 24 cases of an item may actually not sell 24 units in six months or whatever the shelf life of the product is. So in that situation, even when the product is reaching the retail store, you know that with high likelihood, a large part of that case is going to expire. So this is not a problem of execution or a problem of coordination. This is more a problem of design of the product itself and how the supply chain is configured. So one thing that we found was that reducing case pack sizes or customizing case pack sizes to the type of the retailer would be a huge way to reduce expiration of products on the retail shelf. So this was one of the biggest causes that we found there were so many other causes which were really interesting. And there are so many things that manufacturers and retailers can do with each other to coordinate and reduce this problem, improve their profits, and also make their supply chains more sustainable for all of us. What are some ways retailers are addressing these product expiration problems? So I teach about product expiration now in my class. So this project resulted in a research paper and a case study and I have an executive who's an alum of Johnson School come back and talk about this problem from a practitioner point of view. And so one thing that I have learned over time is that some companies care seriously about this problem and are working hard to solve it. And one method is that it seems that companies have discretion about what the shelf life of the product actually is. And so some companies are testing their products in their lab. They are experimenting with different kinds of packaging of products so that they can extend the shelf life of the product and reduce the occurrence of expiration. I would say that's one thing that companies do. Then one can actually be really clever in one's supply chain and do a number of things that are operational within the supply chain to reduce expiration. And this is the part that's most exciting to me as an operations management researcher. So, for example, if you have a product that's expiring on a retail shelf or close to expiration, one can move it from the shelf into a more heavily trafficked area of the store, such as near the cash register or in the end cap of an aisle, which results in that product getting sold a little bit faster. So you gain revenue from it instead of expiring that product. Another one is that one can take a product 
from a store where it is not selling so fast and move the product to another store where it sells well. That's another way of preventing a waste and improving sales at the same time. So these are two kinds of methods that retailers are using. We are currently doing research on things that retailers and manufacturers can do in the upstream supply chain to reduce expiration. So for example, in a warehouse, if I have many pallets of a product with different expiry dates, I can decide which pallet to send to which store based on velocity of sales in that store and the potential for expiration of that product. So this is a really interesting and impactful problem that can result in more sustainable solutions, higher profits, and also beautiful mathematical research at the same time. So I'm having a lot of fun working on this problem. From a people management perspective, how can firms ensure that their employees are correctly monitoring expiration dates? This is a really interesting question. I would encourage your listeners to go to their local stores and check expiry dates of products before they buy. One of the things that they will probably notice is that expiry dates are hard to spot. One has to really look at a product carefully to figure out where the expiry date is printed. The method by which the date is printed varies across companies and types of products. The type of formatting used varies. And sometimes it's not an expiry date. It is like a sell-by date, use-by date, enjoy-by date, best-by date, fresh-by date. And to a consumer, it seems like these things are different from each other. But interestingly, what I learned is that there is no regulation around these things when it comes to packaged food as differently from baby products or drugs. The challenge here is that information requires effort to be discovered. As consumers, we would find it hard to discover it. The same challenge exists for store employees as well, or the truck driver who's coming to do a direct store delivery into the store. So it's a lot of effort to spot these things and move product that's closer to expiration or remove it from the shelf. And I think that contributes to human behavior challenges. So retailers and manufacturers can design products, design their shelf space differently, maybe use some advanced technologies or tagging like RFID type of tagging or GS1 tags to convey more information through the tags themselves so that products can be managed more effectively with respect to their expiration. I think these are really interesting things and you are absolutely right that It's not just an engineering or a mathematical problem, but it's also a human problem to a large degree. I think there's a big role that people who deliver into retail stores, the truck drivers who deliver into retail stores play in this problem. There's a big role that incentives play in this problem. Product manufacturers fight with each other to get a larger and larger display in the retail store. And if my display is large, it helps increase my sales compared to my competitors. But it also means that I need a lot more inventory to support that display. And so my chances of expiration of product also goes up. And then if my truck drivers and my sales associates are incentivized on getting more space and getting more inventory in the retail store, then that would naturally lead to expiration. So incentives can also play a role. Behavior plays a role. There are so many interesting ways of addressing this problem. 
in the US as well as globally we don't even know as researchers what's the extent of this problem globally like for example how much food goes waste or gets lost in developing countries in the supply chain or on retail stores i think these are really important problems for us to work on i'd like to talk more about rfids and product tracking in general i understand that tracking products can be somewhat of a clunky process can you elaborate more on how products are tracked in stores this is a an interesting topic just to take a step back i think it's important to first understand how products are scanned and moved through the supply chain and into a retail store products are moved from manufacturers warehouses to retail distribution centers on pallets every pallet has a barcode pallets are scanned at many places outside the warehouse of the manufacturer then by truck drivers then by receiving in the warehouse of the retailer and so on and all of that scanning is important for invoicing purposes for billing purposes as well as to keep track of inventory but this is a manual process which means it's expensive it's laborious and it is error prone more than 10 years back rfid was thought of as the huge technological solution that will improve productivity in this process and also reduce the occurrence of errors many retailers came out with plans to incorporate rfids throughout their supply chains and tried to work with the manufacturers to do that and truly if if rfid had worked and i think just maybe taking a step back to understand what rfid is it stands for radio frequency identification device and this is a semiconductor chip tag that's attached to a product or the packaging of a product very similar to a barcode which can be read from a distance without scanning so the easiest example of rfid for us is the easy pass tags that we use in our cars to go through toll booths and when you go through a toll booth you don't have to stop to talk to a cashier instead as you're driving through the rfid tag attached to your car receives electromagnetic signals from the transponder and it transmits information unique to your car in response to that which allows the department of transportation to recognize what car it is and bill it so that's basically the technology and exactly the same technology can be used in retailing as well so let's say if there were an rfid tag attached on every single item when i go to a grocery store i wouldn't have to stop at the cash register at all i could just walk through the cash register waving to people and someone could scan all of those items within a fraction of a second very quickly through those transponders and i would be billed automatically it would be so much more convenient and that's really the ideal of what we want to do where we want to go so one can think of it as the future of retailing so about 10 or 15 years back many retailers thought that this was going to be the future and they wanted to get a jump start on the future by investing in this technology starting to work with their supply chain partners and creating technology to help implement rfid the challenge with rfid at that time was that it was expensive and rfid itself was also not an error free technology so if something gets missed in scanning if a product gets wet or if a product has a specific kind of packaging let's say it's enclosed in a metal container then the product would not get scanned and so this caused all kinds of problems and the interesting thing is that if you can't use rfid for all of your suppliers then you need to have a duplicate technology in your supply chain where you're scanning some items using barcode and you're using rfid for some other items so it doesn't really reduce cost it doesn't help improve efficiency it actually would make the job for workers more complex 
now fast forward a few years later we gradually realized that RFID does work effectively for certain kinds of products and certain kinds of supply chain. So if we have high margin items or high ticket items, then the cost of RFID is minuscule and the benefits of RFID are tremendous in that case. So say in clothing retail or in footwear or in book retail or in lots of areas, RFID is actually pretty valuable. And and we do see RFID now in lots of stores that we go to. Now what's happening is machine learning based solutions and blockchain based solutions are emerging and traceability of the supply chain proving that a product is genuine i think those things are becoming an important part of retailing itself and so rfid is getting a second life through all of this so for example in with machine learning if let's say an rfid tag is not scanned at one location but gets scanned at another location then one can do some error correction and if we want to have traceability in the supply chain and we are investing in blockchains then we do need to invest in some kind of inventory tracking technology it may not be rfid it may be something else but these technologies are now getting a lot more attention so it's really interesting to see what's happening in this space Related to product tracking, I'm really interested in the Amazon Go stores, where customers can grab items off the shelves and pay for them virtually without having to physically hand over cash or a credit card. In your opinion, do you think RFIDs are used in the Amazon Go stores, or are there other technologies being used to track the in-store purchases? I haven't been to an Amazon Go store yet. That's on my to-do list. Having read lots of things about it, I think RFID is definitely one of the solutions that they might be using. Now there are other technologies available to do this as well, so it's possible that they may be using a different technology. For instance, if they can track a consumer through their cell phone using location sensing technology, maybe that offers an alternative to RFID that also works and helps them bill a consumer for what they are buying. There are other technologies that are alternatives to RFID. So for example, when I pick up a product from a shelf, if it's an intelligent shelf, it can register that I picked up that product. So I'm not sure if RFID is the technology that Amazon is using in its stores, but it's certainly plausible and it's interesting to see that there are so many other technologies out there that do the same thing now. So actually, how prevalent are intelligent shelves in stores? As an everyday consumer, I don't seem to notice them when I'm shopping. Are they more prevalent than one would think? I think the technology is in a nascent stage. There are some companies that are working on the technology. I also know of companies that were working on it a few years back and now no longer are. So it's hard to say at this point of time what the future of this technology. This is a area that's ripe for so much innovation. And going back to your previous question on data, this is so connected with interesting things that one can do in retail whether brick and mortar or online. And actually it's much more interesting for brick and mortar retail than for online. You've also written about firms that increased their number of brick-and-mortar stores due to Wall Street expectations for high growth. Can you explain why this isn't necessarily an optimal strategy for firms? Maybe to take a step back on this, the research that I have done over several years tries to use the operations performance of a firm measured from public data, from financial data, to make an assessment of how strong a firm is with respect to their productivity and potential for future growth and future profits and i have tried to link that with financial performance of firms and have gotten some degree of success in doing that working with lots of co-authors from across various schools and also publishing a lot of this research the idea here i think can be 
perhaps understood by looking at examples of some companies. If we take a company like Costco, it's really interesting that they have done extremely well operationally over a long period of time consistently. And they have also been consistently overperformers with respect to stock returns. They have just been phenomenal in that dimension. Many other retailers are similar. I think Walmart, for a very, very long time, was known as the epitome of efficiency and productivity and generated stellar stock returns. Examples of firms that we look at in operations who have stellar operations, we find that those firms have typically been extremely successful in the financial market as well. I think Toyota would be another example there. And and we use Toyota in lots of operations management case studies when talking to students and executives. My research specifically focused on the turnover of inventory in a retail store. And the idea is that if you turn your inventory rapidly or faster than your competitor's stores or competitor firms, it means that your product is liked more by customers, you have a much more efficient supply chain, and therefore you also probably have fresher product in the market, your cash situation is better, your stores are more profitable, your employees are more productive. So we linked that with future stock performance of firms. So basically, we took inventory turnover data, historical data, and we built portfolios out of that, of companies that were doing very well on inventory turnover and companies that were not doing so well. And then we made investments in these firms, playing around with data on a computer, so simulated investments using data for long periods of time. So put a dollar in every firm that has high inventory turnover, take a dollar out of every firm that has out of the investment of a firm that has low inventory turnover. And we would track the performance of those portfolios over time. So, so for example, I would invest today in firms that have high inventory turnover today. I would shut my eyes, go to sleep and wake up a year later and sell those firms and again make the same investment in firms that had high inventory turnover a year from now. So it's a really dumb strategy if you think about it because I'm not doing active investment. I'm not looking at any other news. I'm really investing with my hands tied behind my back and with my eyes shut. The only thing I'm looking at is their inventory turnover. And what we found was that these companies were outperforming the stock market by double-digit percentages every year in terms of the average portfolio stock returns. And we adjusted our analysis for risk, and we found that even after adjusting for risk, the performance of these firms remained, these portfolios remained strong. So this was extremely interesting to us because it showed that it pays to focus on the operations of the firm and improve the operational performance. It was also interesting because it showed that investors or Wall Street in general could improve the models that they use to look at operational performance of firms. So we did some more work on that and looked at how analysts make forecasts of sales. And that became another interesting part of the story. What we found was that If a firm achieved high sales growth in a particular year, analysts would, of course, forecast high sales growth for it for next year also. If a firm achieved low sales growth, they would forecast low sales growth for next year. But what was interesting was that they were failing to take into account the effect of inventory on sales growth rate. So let's say today I put a mountain of Tide outside my store and sold a lot of Tide, achieved high sales growth. If an analyst is making a sales growth forecast for tomorrow, 
and doesn't take into account that I actually increased my inventory to achieve that sales growth, then that analyst may confuse this with an improvement in the underlying fundamentals of the firm and have too high a forecast of sales. So what we found was that analysts were ignoring inventory and they were over forecasting sales for firms that used inventory to drive sales and they were under forecasting sales for firms that did not use inventory to drive their sales. So we were able to correct the bias in the analyst forecast. So this was interesting because it showed a reason why the stock market was not fully taking into account operational performance. I think this is a huge topic and it can be applied not just to inventory but to many other types of operational assets of firms and this is just such an important area for research and for bringing to our students. We, I teach a case study on this topic and it's a case study called David Berman, which is based on a hedge fund started by Mr. Berman that was investing in retail stocks. And it talks about how he evaluates a retailer and it has anecdotes about companies that were driving profits through too much inventory or that were unable to drive profits. And it's just an interesting story to tell to students. So as an example, would Best Buy's Geek Squad be a situation where a firm focused on earnings growth and not sales growth? We did not look at Best Buy as an example. It could be. I think it's because at the time when we were collecting data and doing this research, at that time, Best Buy was actually going through some difficulties and they were remodeling their stores. And from the popular press, it seemed like they were rethinking their store strategy. So at that time, they did not figure as a strong example in our data set. Since then, as far as I know, they have focused on customer experience and changed their store assortment and invested in many different ways. So if I were to look at the data again, they might turn up as an example. I'm not sure. But there are so many interesting stories and examples here. Walmart would be one where if one looks at the initial annual reports of the company when it originated in 1970s, the annual reports at that time when Mr. Sam Walton would write the letter to shareholders, they rarely contained the word growth in them. But if one looks at the annual reports in recent years, then the word growth occurs so many times in the annual report of a company that was struggling with growth at that time. I'd like to transition and discuss your research on inventory and how it connects to a company's financial performance. For our listeners, can you elaborate on your findings and their importance? I'm very happy to talk about this. When I began doing my research with retailers, what we found was that there were many retail companies that would grow rapidly, adding hundreds of stores, tens of stores or hundreds of stores a year. And then all of a sudden, they would get into a liquidity problem and file for bankruptcy. We were surprised to see how often this was happening. And we kept chatting among a group of researchers on this topic for quite some time. I came across this article called The Rise and Fall of J. Peter Mann & Company. You may know of J. Peter Mann & Company from Seinfeld. Until I read this article, I didn't know that this was actually a real company, a catalog retailer. One of my close collaborators, Anant Raman at Harvard Business School, and I spoke with Mr. Peterman in Pittsburgh and learned his side of the story. The article that was published in HBR was somewhat of an, I would say, an angry article about how Mr. Peterman was derailed in working on his venture because his investors on Wall Street pushed him to grow too fast. So we kept thinking for a long time about this issue of retailers growing too fast. And what we came up with was that if you 
think about it, retailers have basically two ways to grow. One is to increase the size of a store and add more product to a store. The other is to add more stores. And once a retailer has a really strong and successful business model, then it makes a lot of sense for that retailer to rapidly grow and develop a footprint in that business area. Because first, it's the rational economic thing to do. Also, because it helps protect against competition that may come into that space. It seems that this is what drove retailers to grow rapidly. There was one retailer I did a project with that was growing rapidly at that time. It was a private retailer and they were headed for an IPO. We finished our project before they had their IPO and then after their IPO, they kept growing rapidly. Almost a year after their IPO, I learned that the company had filed for bankruptcy. So companies keep growing and that is a sensible thing for them to do. The question is, when do you stop? How do you know what's the right time to stop? And can you stop? So there are multiple challenges there. One is that in order to stop, one has to keep reading the data on performance of recent stores and companies keep doing that. But the growth projections are typically made several years out and it takes a long time to start a new store. So this is like I'm headed into an iceberg and I try to turn and or I slow down, but it takes a while for me to slow down. And so it becomes difficult to stop in time. The other thing is that a retailer has to change its mindset when it doesn't want to grow. It has to think about other ways of improving profitability. And in the popular business press, we are inundated with literature that tells us how to grow. There is no shortage of books and articles on a million different ways to grow and innovate in one's business. That's a natural, it's the mindset. And so we are fighting against our natural instinct when we think about stopping to grow and doing something else. There are some retailers that have taken an earnings growth-oriented mindset rather than a sales growth-oriented mindset extremely well. So we studied some of these retailers and wrote an article about it. The gist of this study, so where we landed up, where we ended, was that we looked at historical performance of lots of retailers and we compared retailers that were very similar to each other in size and in other characteristics. And we looked at those retailers and they were all mature. And we looked at those that had achieved stellar stock returns over a five-year period and those that hadn't, and we compared them. What we found was that the mature retailers that had achieved high stock returns were not growing their sales. They were growing their earnings. Whereas the retailers that did not achieve high stock returns and were really underperforming the market, they were growing their sales, but their earnings were not growing because the problem was that their expenses were growing as fast or faster than the rate of growth of their sales. So our main finding was that for a mature company, it's really important to pivot from thinking about sales growth to thinking about earnings growth. And the way to achieve earnings growth is by thinking about the business model more carefully. And so within retail, it may be thinking about omni-channel, efficiency and design of stores, customer satisfaction, capital investments of that nature rather than capital investments in adding another set of stores. And there is a huge difference between 
earnings growth and sales growth. So if I have sales growth rate of 5% and expense growth rate of 6%, my earnings are going to decline. Whereas if I have sales growth rate of 5% and an expense growth rate of 4%, then my earnings are going to grow much, much faster than 5%. So even such simple dif- or small differences in the ability to grow expenses in a stable way compared to sales growth can make a huge difference for companies. So there are lots of companies that have done well in this way. So Macy's, I think, has been a recent strong example. Foot Locker has been an amazing example. And I would encourage your listeners to look at those companies. An interesting example from your inventory research is Joseph A. Bank, where the firm's inventory levels predicted its financial performance. For our listeners, can you elaborate on that situation? Joseph A. Bank is an interesting and educational example of how operational performance and inventory management can tie into the financial performance of a company. So during the 2000s, for about six or seven years, Joseph A. Bank was growing rapidly. They expanded from 100 stores to more than 270 stores at that time and kept going. They were registering high sales growth rate their gross margins were increasing consistently and and went over a period of five or six years from a 50% gross margin to about a 60% gross margin. Their operating margins also increased during the same time. So looking at this performance, one would say, wow, this is such an interesting company. And, And indeed, their stock price was going up at a rapid clip. But during this time, what was also happening was that their inventories were growing much faster than their sales. So that led to the question about how they were achieving their sales growth rate and their, if, and, and their gross margin growth rate and was there too much inventory that the company was buying? Was it sufficiently disciplined in taking markdowns and building the assortment of products for their stores? To picture this well, I think it's useful to understand that Joseph A. Bank in, say, 2000 had 120 days of inventory on average. Around 2005, they had more than 300 days of inventory on average. So imagine going into a store where on average the product you're buying is more than 300 days old. So such a high increase or fast increase in days of inventory from 120 to 300 over a short period of time was a cause for concern. And so the question is then, how does one explain this? And is this a company that may have a problem or a company that is actually doing the right thing because it had too little inventory to begin with? What ultimately happened here, I think the view that I would take on that was that is that the type of financial information that is available to us as investors is too little to understand the full business model of a company. We don't know oftentimes uh, what is the markdown discipline of a company. We don't know what's the quality of the inventory that a company has because the financial disclosures that a company has to make don't mandate it, don't require it to provide any further information of this kind. So we trust what the company says. And in this case, the company said that they were growing rapidly, they were increasing their product assortment, and the inventory they carried was in products that were not prone to expiry or aging, and therefore the inventory carried well for a long time. So because of this information asymmetry, trust plays a huge role in looking at a a company. Subsequently, what happened is that I think sometime several years later, Joseph A. Bank was purchased by its largest competitor at that time, Men's Warehouse. And then in 2015, Men's Warehouse 
took an inventory write down of 1.2 billion dollars and closed a number of stores of Joseph A Bank so the way this story aligns one is led to believe that inventory management is a really critical aspect of a retailer's performance and it's important for investors to ask good questions about how a company is managing its inventory it's important for our students to be aware of the implications of inventory management for financial performance and it's also important for companies whether they are retailers or someone else to be upfront with investors and to tell them what exactly is happening with their company and how things are going the reason i mentioned this example and and the reason why we studied this case at that time was because it seemed to us from our research that investors pay too little attention to inventory so they were just missing out on this aspect of a company's management it's a really interesting and educational story to learn from the buy one get two free suits to buy one get three free or four free suits that's where the the joseph bank story was going and it's hard to tell whether that's a good strategy or a bad strategy you know in a down market it might be a good strategy but it may also be an indicator that one has too much inventory because what happens is if i have too much inventory in my store and let's say there's a downturn in demand then i can't sell that inventory if i can't sell it it sits on my books it's eating up cash and since my cash is invested or my capital is invested in that inventory i can't go out and buy fresh product so my business model goes for a whack at that time so being disciplined and in managing inventory is really important and companies that are able to be disciplined in managing inventory should generate substantial excess stock returns which is what our statistical research later on showed I know that there are a bunch of different companies that work with limited inventory, companies such as Trunk Club and Stitch Fix, and from looking at those firms, um do you see any successes in those models? I think limited inventory is an interesting concept that many companies are now adopting and it allows them to provide a very large variety of products to consumers. What's interesting today about companies that operate with limited inventory compared to maybe a few years back is that these companies are using machine learning techniques to identify more closely the needs of a consumer and provide that to that consumer what they actually want which allows them to reduce their need for inventory. One thing that all companies have to watch for regardless of whether they operate with regular models of inventory or with limited inventory is that what you sell generates profit but what you don't sell stays on your books and over time what you don't sell will keep accumulating and form a larger and larger fraction of your inventory and your asset base and it's largely an unproductive asset base that will suck up capital and drag a company down so it's really important to purge the inventory now and then and be disciplined in how purchases are being made this is pretty much the same thing as what we do in our houses too we would buy a bunch of stuff at home what we use gets used what we don't use gets forgotten and and stays in the house and until one does the purge it occupies space and causes a problem so it's much the same with inventory it's the same thing with other types of assets as well i think this is a really interesting thing for our students and graduates to work on thank you for elaborating on that to close out our conversation i'd like to talk about your time at johnson It was announced in February that you'll be transitioning back to full-time faculty in the fall. What are you most looking forward to when you return to teaching? I'm looking forward to my return back to the classroom definitely and I'm also looking forward to having uh, more time to do research. It will be a slower pace of life after a 5-year term as associate dean so I think it will take me some time to adjust to that. Right now I have to prevent myself from 
making too many commitments for the future. So I have to be really careful when someone comes and asks me, shall we work on this project? And I'm very tempted to say, in two months, I'll have time to work on this project. I don't want to get into those commitments at this time. I think the experience as an associate dean has been a really rewarding experience for me. It has put me in touch with so many of our alumni and excellent faculty and students and given me so many ideas that will hopefully help me do stronger research going forward. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to Professor Drew Pascarella stepping into this role and bringing in his energy and ideas and creativity for our MBA program. It'll be fun. I'll be around and I'll watch what Dean Pascarella does. What advice do you have for incoming Dean Pascarella as he takes on the role of Associate Dean for MBA programs? That's hard. I think the biggest advice I would have would be to avoid overcommitting himself. And sometimes when there are lots of things coming at you, instead of trying to work on all of them at the same time, it's better to sometimes lock one's door and work on one thing so that you have an accomplishment, you finish something and you move from there. I think what we achieve is more important than one we, what we leave out at some points in time. I think that's what might be a useful perspective for him to have. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Dean Gar, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining us today at Present Value, and it was great speaking with you. Thank you so much, James, for this opportunity. This was a lot of fun for me, too, and I'm really impressed to see the amount of research that you did going into this conversation. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Bernardo Espinoza, Caroline Wright, Serena Olavia, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tin. I'm your host for this episode, James Feld. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center and Resonate Recordings for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.